and casual players of the game, it's it's almost in a sense it's like it's barely above uh, promoting abandonware. Whereas it's like you know something with Blizzard with the marketing behind Overwatch. If you had Blizzard's level of marketing engagement of Overwatch but applied to TF2 from Valve, I think the game would well, flourish. What about older games like Quake though? Like those arena shooters with those communities, like they're able to kind of get by on their own. Don't you think maybe TF2 could become more self-sustainable in that way as well and just sort of exist, grow together? Like, do you think maybe just getting an influx of casual minds into the scene could kind of help restore a sense of hope? of dynamicism of just interest in actually playing like learning in terms of competitive and then maybe that could trickle back down into casual and just reinvigorate interest in more community things potentially i think that for that to happen though is i think if this is more of like a product manager perspective is like when you think about like um you know and getting an engagement from a player base is like you have to make it the easy lowest common denominator that makes it accessible i imagine with lots of games like quake is I don't know if the official companies like for the older Quake games, if the companies are still sponsoring them or hosting environments for them, but like there's got to be a North Star that everyone can rally around. Right. Like right now, TF2, yes, you can still go to the, the Valve Store page. There's a TF2 download link. You download it, you install it, you play it. That experience is where the majority of your funnel is going to be. And until Valve abandons that, and like the game is no longer listed or not downloadable anymore, and then the only way is like an open source distributable, which is say like you know they think about like how Team Fortress Classic does it. It's like Team Fortress Classic is a successor that can truly address those issues because they are the distributor, they have the source code, they could take care of things like bots, um, and they can clean up the game and give it the attention it needs. But the problem is, is like you know not a lot of people play Team Fortress Classic. It was like what a couple servers filled at the most, right? And that's because a lot of it, the marketing and awareness is overwhelmingly still captured by Valve. Valve is basically slowly strangling this thing to death by not releasing it, but also not uh, giving it the tender love and care that it needs. And I think that until something breaks, either Valve gets their act together or they completely just, you know, they cut the cord and the game becomes free to um, grow independently of the now Valve namesake, I think it's going to be caught in this kind of in between that mm. it just isn't as healthy right. as like, i would like it to be like some people are still trying to like wait out hope for valve to kind of fix things and so they're not all going to be motivated to just try and come together and all these things kind of yeah i think in a oh. sense but also even if they were to come together and fix those things it's um you can build but it doesn't mean they will come i mean if you yeah. can build this thing is like the average the average user is still going to still probably go to the steam store and go through the official TF2 um, download links. And also, I think there's probably some sort of, you know, intellectual property rights or other things that, you know, should anybody try to market or make money off of it, uh, Valve's going to come after them. So you can't you can't put any financial incentives or marketing. There's, there's no value in putting marketing behind it because you're not going to be able to make a return on investment because you can't charge money because Valve's going to come after you. I mean, it's their intellectual property. So I think that it not being abandoned where in itself also has that implication as well. Mm, okay. I don't know, I just feel like it's the sort of thing where it's like, uh, we actually didn't get around to talk about this before, but just like the sorts of guides you would do, people just coming together, working on things, humanizing the competitive scene, and but then and then seeing all that like knowledge, all that kind of collaboration trickle back down into casual. And it's like, I feel like that's just something that would be really beneficial, especially if it's also something that casual content creators sort of help partake in as well, to just really build a new sense of community to repair the damage that's been done. Yeah, I would say, though, that 
the articles that you refer to are articles at a time where people were highly already engaged with the game. And I don't think that they furthered engagement per se, but they, when I say further engagement, they didn't, I don't think they generated new players. I don't think they brought new blood, but I think it continued to reinforce the players that were there and it kept them playing longer and by mm. proxies you had a you had a growing user base as new players came on tf2 was unique in that it persisted as player base for a very long time people were still hopeful for the game the game was going to be there you know in that in that in that era it was there for forever the game was never going away but now you look at it today it's like well the game is bot ridden there's not been updates in years nobody has any faith in valve see um sorry yeah no so i just i, I don't see the same level of aspiration from the community that um today that i saw then see i just i don't think that's it's that important a lot of older games like if you look back to the more niche ones they have their sort of followings like they don't really need official support they just need something along the lines of like the servers being up and a lot of the time there is no easy accessible casual thing for new people again to but then they still have their own communities but then here it's just like you have so many content creators still that can still kind of like shift the tide just raise awareness bring new people in friends of friends and all that stuff appeal to other sorts of people collaborate with people of other communities to sort of get new interest in and it's just the sort of thing where I think it could be very possible for a lot of people to just collaborate, work together, and just sort of f fill the gap. Because it's like, yeah, sure, Valve's never going to like come back, but then like that's pretty possible. But then we also just have something so unique here. And if you take a look at other sorts of games, their issues, it's like, okay, we might not sure. be able to do anything about the casual side of the scene. Okay. Other sides like other communities don't really have that good of a casual see themselves, but then they're still able to sustain themselves. And I think right. it's just important to be able to look at everything and be able to just come together and be like, okay, this sucks, but there's still something we can do in spite of that instead of giving up hope. I think TO2 will always persist. It's, uh, it's kind of niche environment and it'll never truly die out, but I think it's going to be one of those things. It's like, think of like TF2 on like, you know, the PS3 and the Xbox 360 is like, you might be able to find a server or two, in the rarest of cases that are filled up yeah. on you know, like a certain time of day. It's like, it'll never go away, but I think that for TF2 to truly have the flourish and the level of love and growth that it saw 10 years ago is it until, like I said, it has to either completely detach from Valve or Valve has to take it back up. Right. Because if it's not detached from Valve, you never get away from the source code being somewhat protected and the main path of introduction to players being that methodology of downloading from the store. And I mean, like we saw it before, the Source Engine had remote, you know, RCE. They had remote uh, code executable exploits, um, which those things are really damn, you know, they're really damn dangerous. And um, it's a very compelling reason not want to get on there. It's these things are showing up and they're unlikely or they're taking a long time to get patched. And it's going to be exploit after exploit. Eventually, it's going to be too unsafe to even launch the game. Um, Valve would be compelled to close it down, or if the game were completely abandoned by Valve and the source code, I mean, which I believe is already accessible, at least an older version of it, you have an yeah. independent community that is, like, open-sourced it, and they're, you know, patching those things out actively. That's another means of the game coming back, but when your primary accessibility standpoint is still being funneled through the Valve store and Valve is negligent to update it, um, I think there's always going to be a struggle. Um, I there's not a lot of financial incentives for the third-party content creator to create things for a game that is slowly dwindling over time and they're not able to find financial incentive from. Um, and Valve is not putting a lot of time and energy into it that I think they should. I mean, truth be told, one thing I think would be the, the greatest thing that could ever be done by Valve is 
uh, I think the way this game gets the uh, fast, you know, uh, fast ticket to a second life is Valve hires a single contractor, and they're given a budget, and they're saying, and they just said, "Go to town, give the game a second life." Well, and they hire those content creators, and I think that like giving a second life to it through that means and getting people to give love and care to it would absolutely cause that game to flourish. See, I don't think we see that ever, but I think still there's a lot we can do as a community to sort of expand that niche gradually or to sort of sustain it and help it kind of spread naturally and gradually over time as long as we reinforce the health of the competitive scene and keep interest going between those two things by making them self-sustainable to each other. And it's like, yeah, okay, whatever, bot infested casual servers still have community servers and a lot of the remaining people would kind of eventually at some point kind of be aware yeah. of those issues and flock to community servers and it's just like well while you're community never gonna... servers can put some level of As mitigation this... to things like bots is like this engine as it continues to age is like if you're running a community server somebody has remote you know rces that they're running that can attack anyone on a community server there's not as great means to dealing with that without forking the source code of the game itself and patching out those inevitably found RCEs. Well, uh, so either Valve has to get on top of that, or I think there's a tipping point where like Team Fortress 2 Classic becomes the status quo of the game, and that's where the game will then be able to flourish and grow that niche again. I just think that every time there's a problem, there's a solution, and every time there's a solution, there's a problem, but both of them always kind of keep racing each other. As long as you have a caring community, you're going to see those sorts of solutions still try and come through, through some mean, because people do care, and I think Agreed. it's important to keep caring. And it's just like, I don't know, I think it's just a case where it's like... For the longevity of a community, caring. you need a funnel that is easy access to get into it, uh, you know, somebody who used to run an online community, uh, you know, both large and small, um, a community that doesn't foster an easy method of growth is not going to have a wide funnel of receiving new members. And if it's only the same people that have always been playing, you're going to your stack, your growth will stagnate and people will eventually leave. They will lose interest, this and that. And the community will small, slowly dwindle over time. So having a, a healthy funnel that allows for new intake is going to be important um, for this community. If it's if the barrier to entry is too high, um, it won't, you know, I don't think it'll spell, um, you know, good fortune for the right. for the game in the long term. So I, I agree that something needs to be done, um, but what exactly that is, um, I, I would say is probably still up for debate. Yeah, like it's something we need to come together and work on because we're never going to get a magical solution provided to us. It's just right. like, yeah, stuff sucks, but you're never going to have a community without a struggle. And this is just something we need to work together on as a community and come together on if we care about the game and if we want it to live. And it's just like, I feel like it's important to just not lose hope at the fact that, yeah, we might not get supported by Valve because other games can do it with that. And they have much smaller communities. And so can we, I think is what I'd say as a takeaway. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still a lot of avenues to be pursued here. You know, maybe we can absolutely maybe like, we can pull up enough money to get some licensing rights, and we can just buy TF2 off Valve. <laughs> you know, they did it with they did it with CS2, okay. right? That company. Uh, I have an idea. We invest in NFT. We invest in NFTs. They're already worthless. They're just like unusuals. We have experience with trading in them, there and then go. we work our way up. We sell them. We crash the NFT market, and we revive TF2. <laughs> we uh, buy TF2 with that money. You know, it's the way there forward. We've had a golden opportunity given to us. Future of TF2, but, I believe. I definitely think it's an interesting discussion to be had. Like, I feel like it's very interesting viewpoints to see from each other. <laughs> Honestly, this is what I love about this sort of format. Like, that's just like a completely random discussion that we had. For sure. 
And you know, and I and I've always thought about this throughout the years. And you know, um, as as my role is today, I actually am a um, a product manager for a, a software and hardware company. And I, I I get to look at things from more of a macroeconomic perspective, which is why I think I I fixate on the perspective that I have. Um, and I mean, I be candid is like I still believe that there is an opportunity here and. Truth be told, is like you know, should the day come that for whatever reason um, I decide to pursue uh, another role in my career outside of this company, I've always thought about actually sending that resume to Valve and just be like, put that cover letter to be like, hey, I'm someone who played your game for ten years, you know, <laughs> um, and I'm applying here not because I think you guys are the greatest thing ever, as I think you guys used to be, but like, there's a lot of potential here you guys have squandered, and I want to. Um, I want to try and revive that. I think that you guys have a golden goose and it needs to start laying eggs again. I think I think that's something that I would feel empowered to try. But, you know, right now my career opportunities and aspirations aren't quite aligned to, right. to pursue that today. And it also is contingent on the day that I do that, um, that Valve bites. And it's hard to say. I've never, I've never really gone out of my way to apply to Valve before and I don't know what the hiring process is like uh-huh. and whether or not they'd have any interest. Right. It's it's worth exploring. Do you mind if I like share my pers- by like my sort of sentiment for a little bit for a second? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I come at it from the perspective of the top the bottom of the game is only as healthy as the top of the game. Both sides mm-hmm. have to coexist and I feel like the main issue we see like Yes, of course, we have the issue with Valve, right? But then I think another huge underlying issue that goes along with that is just a divide between the casual and the competitive community and the competitive community and the bottom of the competitive community, like the top of it and the bottom. And you'll see some YouTubers who are like, oh, don't balance things around competitive or who are some are like, balance things around competitive. You know, it's just like, we got to work together on these things because these issues aren't going to solve themselves and Valve isn't going to give us some magic bullet solution. But For in sure. times of struggle, that's when people end up coming together most, and that's when you can heal that sort of divide. I feel like because so it's you funny have you, to. it's funny that you mention the the pretense of balancing around competitive because I actually have a perspective on that. Um, and oh, yeah? candidly, I believe that balancing around competitive actually is generally a bad idea, and it's something that we saw actually a lot with Blizzard and Overwatch, and I think that oh, that yeah. also caused a similar kind of toxic mentality. So very candidly. You know, my perspective of why, you know, why balance should be, uh, I, I agree with you that it should be more of a middle ground between competitive players and non-competitive players. Right. But I find that very often what ends up happening is um, you end up with a situation where the competitive players often become well-recognized and they become, you know, you know, kind of internet famous e-celebs for the game. Bang. And they're the ones that get all the attention. And what happens is, is they get a following, and the co- and competitive players have an opinion, of course, from their perspective of how they experience the game, and that often gets parroted by the masses of the common players, and the game companies, as product managers of this community, often make the mistake of hearing that popular opinion from the co- the common masses and believing that it is truly their opinion and not just one that is echoed of that of a competitive player and the game gets balanced around people that are extraordinary in their well, mechanics of the game here's what i have to say to that i don't think valve does that here i think it's something that if we all want to do oh no it certainly doesn't right but so i it's think like, it's uh i feel like it, I can... it, sorry so I, I think that my takeaway is not to say that like 
to be I'm not saying that Valve does it and I'm not saying that it is um what they should do, but I think that it's it's a dangerous sentiment that I've I've not seen really any any mm. company well, ever do well. Here's what I have to say. It's an, it wouldn't be a company doing this, it would be the players. And we as players, sure. we don't have time to screw around anymore. It's just something we have to get right because the game's life is sort of in a dangerous spot right now. So we don't have sure. the li- the permission we don't have this safety net of it being like oh, you know, this company could save us, or oh, something will get right. better. Nothing is going to get better unless we make it better, and I think that is a very strong motivator for people if we come together on it, and we discuss Certainly these agreed. things but together. It, but my sentiment still stands, is letting the competitive or the, you know, the e-celebrity players of the game set the, the rhetoric right. and I'm is so- going to end up with the same problem that you have, is that you end up tweaking these very fine-tuned things that the top 1% of players are capable of doing, and it has no or negative impact on the, on the, on the common play, and the dynamics aren't changing throughout the rest right. of the game. I'm saying, like, if we do try and do something like that, like, I think we're, we'd be kind, like, I think we're kind of aware of the fact that we just don't have that much of a buffer, so we have to get it right. Like, we can't just... Agreed, but I, I think thing. that when we, should we approach that as a community, we gotta be very particular about doing that right. Right, and I um, think that's, like, why we on. might end up doing it right, if that makes sense, yeah. For sure, yeah, and there's plenty of opportunities to do so. But I think that you know, I would say today is that the how the how the competitive scene handles it is they they get the authority of moderating at least how competitive is done, and they get to choose the the ban list, they get to choose right. the map list, and I think that there that is going to have to change. And I hope that the the collective community players in this arrangement are able to influence that in a healthy way because in my perspective is how competitive is played is the 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 shrinking of mechanics is not healthy to the game it is as it is it helps nobody right that was a pretty deep chat yeah so i feel like sci-fi accidentally come to you from time to time no no worries that was a pretty invigorating um (laughs) and it, it is funny that you mention it because you know, kind of reimagining the game um, makes me think about the the side project that I had. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So towards the end of my playing the games, in fact, after I stopped, I I had stopped for about a year or two. But I always had a vision of something I wanted to do, um, and it was kind of in the spirit of this a little bit. Um, I actually worked on a mod for the game called Alternative Fortress, and what it did is it was a, a mod where we took every unlock in the game. We didn't just tweak it. It wasn't a balance or a pro mod. It wasn't what I was going for. It was the idea of just reimagining everything in the game uh, for it to do something new. And the idea is like, for someone who's played the game for a decade, it's like, you know the arc of the lock and load. You know the damage numbers of the direct hit. You know all of these things. You know the splash radiuses. Like, it's muscle memory. But what would happen if everything you knew was suddenly changed and it was all completely different and it was mechanics that you don't have any re- base of reference for and um there is an attributes mod for source mod that i used to change all of the attributes of the unlocks in the game and this mod it's great because the the only caveat is it doesn't display attributes in your loadout menu it still shows the original stats but if you inspect player in game it shows the proper stats but you don't have to download any client-side mod for it. If you just connect to a server that has it, it just works. But uh, I made this mod, and I reimagined every weapon in the game. And um, the TF2 attribute system, even for something that was 
you know, created in 2007. It's a powerful system. Um, and we did some crazy things with it. And, uh, for example, uh, the Hulong heater is now a minigun that shoots flares, oh, which yeah. is, you know, every time someone sees it, they're like, oh my god, that's so crazy. It's like, how, it's like, how do I play with this? It's like, Heavy has fire damage now. Like, he can now, like, crit and mini crit people from mid range. It's like, what is this? How do, like, Heavy's not, Heavy's a hit scan class. What the hell are these projectiles? But, uh, <laughs> so there's all sorts of crazy things you can do with the game engine. And I made an exercise from that. So, um, I had a couple friends that were still participating in competitive and I asked them if they could put up uh, a little bit of feelers for me to start some pugs. So we did some pickup games where we gave everyone, we didn't give them all the details to say like, here's what every weapon does, but we said we reimagined all the weapons in the game and they all do something different and come join us. And we actually, I got a surprising amount of interest for the short period that we ran these pugs. Right. I think we ran it for a couple of months but what was amazing is like we probably had 60, 70 people, so it was easy to fill a couple Highlander teams. Um, but we had players that were considered, you know, top divisions of their time. We had players that were casuals that had never played competitive. And we had um, players that I would say, you know, you know entry level to mid level competitive. And what was amazing to me is we mixed these players up across the teams. And we had despite the fact that we had very, very high-level, high-tenure fidelity players, they were balanced games, and no one person dominated. The players that were casual and new had the same footing as your 10,000-hour veteran players because it took away all of their muscle memory, all their psychology, all their understanding of the dynamics of what things do and how to capitalize on their weapons. It was all ground zero. And to me, it was amazing because it becomes this thing that is difficult for games. As games mature, the high-level players, in a sense, even if it's inadvertent, they gatekeep the more introductory players by having so much you know, uh, veteran uh, familiarity with the game is that it's, you can't catch up and you can't compete. And if the game is a, you know, a smaller game where that's really who's remaining in the community, it's dissuading for new members. Um, but this mod, when we did the pickup games, everyone had fun and everyone was a contender. There was no, nobody dominated the game because it, it reset the playing field. Everyone was new. It was a game that was familiar, but not familiar at the same time. And it was a great gap closer for these people that you probably in any other environment, if they were doing conventional game pugs, they wouldn't play together. But everyone enjoyed it, and it was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of fun exploring the new weapons, exploring the game like a new again, and coming up with crazy new strategies and learning the the pros and cons of what these new weapons were. It's like, um, you know, one of my favorite ones is like we had this uh, soldier where the the original had been changed, and the original's new dynamic is like for one, we had one player who loved the original because they weren't good at rocket jumping, and how the original worked is they actually the weapon had six rockets which sounds very powerful for the game, but it reduced rocket jumping capacity by 50%, which meant, like, your rocket jumps were barely enough to get up to, like, you know, think about uh, Koth Harvest when you come out of spawn getting on the roof. You have to crouch jump to barely make that lip. So you're not a pogo soldier. You're kind of a waddle soldier, but you're powerful still. You're a combo player, and that gave a player who didn't play soldier a new dynamic to participate, but it gave another player who's like who wanted to know all the jumps. What are the cheeky things they could do with this lesser rocket jump but still have a new dynamic to the game 
Hmm, okay. And there's a lot of crazy unused attributes in the game. You'd be really surprised. So, um, so go for it. Did you have any interest in like trying to like make this sort of run this again, or like maybe get some casual players in on it? Yeah. So, um, I would absolutely love to see a little bit more, um, you know, interest in this. But uh, I think that since I've kind of passed my, uh, you know, peak in this game, I'm not as involved with the communities as I once was. So I don't, I don't necessarily know where would be the best place to get attention to it. I'd and, say uh, uh, reach out to some content creators. Yeah. No, uh, I would definitely I mean, agree. say so. Uh, I, I certainly could. Uh, I, uh, and to that point, too. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I actually know some competitive content creators who know casual content creators, and I can maybe pass that along. Yeah, no, if you'd, li if you'd love to share it. I'm yeah, no, to I'd absolutely love to. And then well. I might honestly like make put this video up sooner. I'm not sure quite yet, though. But this one, I I'm really liking this one so far, the whole <laughs> lifespan of the game discussion. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of great content here for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, also it's for two. It's like, uh, by the way, this in the entire Alternative Fortress mod is open source. So um, I host it on my own community server. Uh, we have dedicated Alt Fortress nights, which I'd be happy to, um, you know, socialize and give people the opportunity to play. But the mod is also open source, so people can actually, you know, look into it and see like how how the whole thing works. So uh, happy to share those links as part of this, uh, you know, this interview as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, do you have like a link for it or anything? Like, do you have a website? Uh, we have the GitHub. It's a GitHub repository. Um, that's kind of where the source of truth of where the latest development of the game is at. Um, I have a co-contributor who's kind of, uh, as I've taken more of a backseat on it, um, he has become the primary developer. Um, you can see his contributions to the um, the GitHub. Um, but yeah, um, that's kind of the website for it today. Um, Probably, I, I would say that there's probably a little bit of a lacking of videos demonstrating how, like, you know, seeing in action, because you can read about it all day, but it's a lot different. You can hear about someone talk about a minigun that shoots flares, and then you can watch someone mow down an entire team with flares with the Hulong heater. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think we need to do a little bit more video content. We have some basic ones from back when we did pugs. We had a couple people that were demonstrating some of the strategies they come up with. Like, uh, the Jag has bi-directional teleporters now. And, like, we had a guy who was trying to do a crazy strat between B and E with his sentries and bi-directional tellies. And it was it was interesting. So uh, we probably need to get a couple more of those out to kind of, you know, help people visualize and see the, the new dynamics. Right. Okay. Um... Okay. So um, you did some engineering guides as well, right? Like, could you go and walk me through some of those, sort of explain the thought processes, what it was like creating those, the reception and all that? Yeah, so let's see. I think the first one that was independently authored following the uh, engineering Bible was the Engineer's Guide to Engineering. Yeah. And it was at a point where, you know, I think that I had started to receive um, more independent inquiry into, you know, my engineer play. It's like, why do you do what you do? Um, what's your thought process behind it? Uh, you know, uh, the most common question I would get by far was, where should I place my sentries on this map or that map? It wasn't usually, how do I determine them, but where? And I would always give them the same answer, which was, I can't tell you. Nobody can tell you. Um, part of an effective sentry placement and is to say, you determine it by understanding the pros and cons and weaknesses. And if you're just emulating a location, a location doesn't explain why 
It doesn't explain the pros and cons. It wasn't observed. And even if someone tells you those things, you may not, you know, retain them or you may not have the appreciation of why. Um, so it inspired me that past a point, rather than answering these people time and again, is like, you know, where do I place my gun on this map? It's like, well, uh, you know, rather than give a man a fish, feed him for a day, uh, teach a man to fish. So, um, I, you know, it was a kind of an inspiration to teach people how to fish. So, um, I wrote this article and it's crazy. I, I wrote the article in like a single day. Um, I just kind of like started to think about it and I pounded it out wrote it out on a keyboard, and I, I threw the article up the next day. In fact, I think I, I put it in two places. I put it in the Steam Community Guides, but there was yep. also uh, Steam Powered User Forums had like, a news website. And I signed up for there, and I submitted it as a draft, and I forgot about it. <laughs> and the next thing I knew is like two, three days later, I had like 25 people adding me. People were messaging me like crazy. Um, and the guide had 10,000 views. It was just like people were just renowned about seeing this thing that kind of like seemingly came out of the blue, but they were enamored by someone taking this philosophical approach to um, engineer and exploring not just the mechanics of how does it work, but what are the implications of why you do certain things. And like it, it focused on, I would say, both mechanics as well as implications of mechanics, but also implications of philosophy. So, for example, is like, you know, ask someone, tell them to ask you what a teleporter does for engineer. I mean, if I were to ask you, like, to you, what is a teleporter for the engineer class? Uh, I'd say it prevents an opportunity for Spy to get easy backstabs on unaware players. Okay. So <laughs> I'm prevents... joking, I'm joking. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I'd say it just gives your, like... It's really, like, the center of where your team is going to be regripping and initiating from, right? Like, it's just the source of that sort of aggression or defense. Yeah, I, I think that's I, that's a fair sentiment. And, you know, if I asked that question to people 10 years ago, I think the more common response I would have received is it reduces the time to the front line. It's 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 a time reducer. That's all it is. That's how people perceived hmm. it. Um, and I think to your point is, you, you make a good point, is it's it's a, it's a congregation spot. But um, if you take it a step further, it's kind of, uh, it may not always be because you may have people that elect not to use a teleporter, but it's a very powerful social tool. And I think that this is where the dynamic gets really interesting is, for example, uh, one thing that I was uniquely known for when I would play Steel is very commonly on Steel, on Red Team, on Rollout. The most common strategy for the first teleporter was people would quite often put a teleporter entrance on A and then the exit at B. And the reason for that was is they wanted to put people at A to buy a couple seconds of hold time, which usually you didn't buy very much. You maybe bought 30 seconds if you were lucky. But the idea is that you would teleport your combo or something out to B and they would um, be able to rotate faster to B so that you got a better B hold. But I got to be honest, is like I found that to be very high risk and low value. And often people, the reason they did it is because they didn't have a better idea of what to do with that teleporter. Because it's like, you can't, if you put a teleport to spawn a bee, it's like, what's it going to do? Teleport you to the point, 10, you know, 100 hammer units away, whatever. Um, but to me, as I thought of it from a different dynamic, is there's a couple of things that make a teleporter interesting at that particular spot, and there's implications to it. First of all, B spawn, once you lose A, you can get out B or E, but E is so ineffective that it basically is abandonment of E by using it. 
But the B spawn um, was easily campable because the two choke points, high ground from E and coming in from B, made that area inaccessible, which meant there was no other real great way to get into it. The drop down would basically be suicide if you were to take that. So, um, I had the bright idea of I wanted to create a third entry point, uh, or a second entry point, really, since there was only the one kind of exit, by putting a teleporter at the C connector, the BC connector, where the gate was still closed. And what that did is it had two implications. Is for one, it made my it gave my team an extra avenue of approach the point. It made this enemy team either if they were aware of it to have to go out of their way to extend to take out that teleporter, or they would have to split their attention to cover a broader range of entry points into the point. But it also, when you think about it from another perspective, is it had the dynamic of the spy. Is the spy is B is a very active point. The E connector is also a fairly active avenue of approach. So oftentimes you would find the spy would find themselves in the species corridor, the connector. And by putting a teleporter there, you eliminated, uh, you, you, what you did is you increased traffic. If you had to put a heat map of that whole area, I would say like the point itself and the spawn area are red. And I would think of that as being blue. There's almost no traffic there. But you generate traffic. You are bending the social norms of the area using the teleporter, and you eliminate a focal point for a spy to come in and have a safe harbor by forcing uh, redirection of traffic. And I think that that was some of the dynamics I wanted to introduce to people is think of not of it just as a means of closing a gap, but traffic shaping. And um, you know, that same philosophy, you could apply it to, to, you know, sentries and dispensers and really change <laughs> perspective of why you did what you did. Right, like a dispenser in a behind rock on product might mean your medic goes to there and then they just get rolled by spam. Right, right. Oh, I was actually, uh, that's, that's another great example. I oftentimes, like I was an, a type of engineer, I never actually put my, my dispensers behind rock because it was fa effectively an inevitable death trap. Mm. I see, yeah. And would you ever consider placing your dispenser like further back in pro on pocket, or do you think it was like a protected area in the near the corner? Right. So the most, well, it was a it was a mix. Rock, I never chose as a spot, and the only time I would, well, I take it back. I would only put it at rock if the game was effectively so lopsided that our game our team was dominating and almost always owned point. If our pressure was always putting them at their house or closer to their spawn, I'd maybe put it behind rock because there was just like. There was no point of putting it in more passive. But if, if point was a point of a contention, uh, there was constant battles there, the dispenser, if it were aggressive, it would go at the bottom of cliff. And if I put it, if I, I, that's where I would put it. Um, and then if that was going to destroy regularly or the medic was at risk, I actually had a fairly passive dispenser. I would oftentimes put it behind house on our side. Wow. Which seems fairly um, passive. However, the uptime of the dispenser was high. Oftentimes, dispensers at rock or cliff would go down. You often had level ones or level twos, and metal was scarce on the map. However, um, behind house, the dispenser often would stay up and stay high. And what I might have done in certain situations, this was also a very unusual strategy for the time, but if I were playing more of a, uh, a utility engineer where I wasn't focusing on frags, I would actually run level threes. I would put the level three behind house which would dissuade flankers. And what I would do 
is I would have the teleporter also behind house and the dispenser there also behind house. But what I would do is I would run Rescue Ranger. And whenever my team would take the point, I would actually uh, carry the dispenser up to cliff so that my team could hold aggressively. And then as we started to lose ground, if the dispenser started taking damage or my players couldn't hold there because the enemy was pushing on them, I would have line of sight to re retrieve the dispenser with the rescue ranger and then deploy it behind house again. So that way I was able to maintain a massive pool of metal, a constant level three dispenser that was useful to my team when forward, but also useful to my team when passive. And it was a resource management that kept a very new dynamic and having the level gun itself was also useful because it gave my team a, a healthy safe retreat and a retreat for myself uh that mitigated flankers our medics uptime was much higher and we always had resources with the teleporter and the dispenser to be able to re-engage much much more quickly hmm, okay pretty interesting to hear but yeah um how do your teams usually re react to this were they like appreciative of all the active engagement or was it like kind of weirding them out due to it not being as meta? Yeah, so it depended. Um, in the earlier seasons when I would do it, when the teams, when I was still kind of bouncing around from team to team, I would get some teams that were particularly negative to the sentiment because they expected the engineer to um, be on the front lines and dying constantly and shotgunning things and going for the medic because he's a you know disposable class that can do that. Um, but you would have other teams, uh, some teams that were generally a little more like, if the teams were very combo-centric, or the team was a more accommodating and more accommodating to my playstyle is you'd have a lot of teams that were complaining like, hey, the, the dispenser's never up, the dispenser's not leveled. Those teams, when I I would play conventionally uh, at their request, and I would say like, hey, I don't think this is working. I'm going to try this other thing out, uh, you know. And they'd be like, okay, like I don't I don't think I buy it, but go ahead and give it a try. But then like I would get you know uh, positive sentiment from like the demo and the heavy. It's like wow, like I always have metal. I'm always getting healed up. It's like, hey, this is kind of working. And what was interesting is oftentimes, because, you know, around that time is when we had, you know, logs, um, despite the fact that I would not necessarily be as frontlining, having the leveled guns that would often, if they were, because you can also do cheeky, aggressive sight lines that would allow you to place the gun where it would actually shoot the combo when they got on point, but also mitigate flankers, is the damage numbers. My damage numbers compared to the other engineer, in in many of the games, I'd say 80% or more, were usually within 10 to 15%, is despite the less active engagement, having a leveled gun and also just being alive more and be able to like fend things off if I had, uh, uh, in rare situations, maybe I ran shotgun or even with this, this, uh, the situation I, I proposed with the rescue ranger, uh, the damage numbers generally weren't that much less. Hmm. I see. Yeah, seemed quite knowledgeable in engineering. <laughs> uh, it's, it was a lot of strategy that evolved throughout the years. There's lots of things. You know, it's funny, too, is because there was certainly a duality of how people perceived um, some of the things I did. So um, there was a very short period, towards the end of when I was playing, there was a very funny um, short period of time where, uh, I don't know how, if you remember it, Engineer, the Mini, the Mini used to never be repairable. And uh, they made the Mini repairable. But why would they do this? Why? Why would they ever? Well, there was a unique time there where the Mini had become repairable, but it was before the time where the Rescue Ranger consumed ammo, I'm sorry, metal to repair. And I realized that 
there was an interesting strategy that had evolved from this. And in this like two week period, what I had done is I had it was on Lakeside was the map that was being scrimmed for the week. I decided to run Rescue Ranger with mini sentries, which sounds absolutely asinine. But what I ended up finding out is that leveled guns on a map like Lakeside, they could be easily spammed out because Lakeside has a lot of low ground areas and high ground areas could be spammed out from line of sight. But the mini was a great mitigator for the flank trying to bomb the medic. And what they would do is they just often chip away at it. Well, if I had a rescue ranger that wasn't consuming metal, I could easily just shoot the mini and keep it up against chip damage while not having to be in close proximity so I myself am not taking damage. I could maintain a dispenser. I could maintain a teleporter. Uh, I just stay around my mini for bombers. If I'm not too active, I don't really need the shotgun for engagement. Um, and the enemy team is like, Lakeside's not a map where health is abundant. So if they're away from their, their medic, they're taking chip damage from this mini. And I can just keep it up indefinitely. And in the extreme cases where they get a lucky shot and they take it down, um, I could drop down two more minis. Because I'm not using ammo with the, the rescue ranger to repair them. So I have, I'm sorry, not using metal. So I have a mini on the field, I have 200 metal to drop two more minis, and I can repair every mini that goes down, which was just an absolute nightmare for the enemy team. And I remember during the two weeks I did it, we were trying out a couple of, I think, spy players. And one of the spy players during the night, um, after the game, he was like, huh, that is, that's really interesting. He's like, you're really thinking about your class. He's like, I've never seen that. I never would have thought to do it. But like, that's a really cool strategy, and that must be annoying for the enemy flank. And then the next night, we had another spy who says, you're the worst goddamn engineer ever. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And that duality of just seeing that from one night to the next was really funny to see. Um, because it's like you have one person that was like applauding this non-conventional perspective that they thought was like someone exploring the class, and this other person that's just like, they weren't going to have it. They're just like, you're like, that's not how you play this game. How dare you? <laughs> I see. Have you uh, made any mortal enemies? Uh, I have a lot of people that have certainly uh, have discontent for me. I think some people, um, you know, some people very much just, they aren't, they never liked my personality, kind of like what I did to the League. They were kind of the contrarians of Plat Council. Uh, so, I, uh, you know, I was never allowed to participate or try out for their teams or any teams where they had friends on. Um, but it's, it's, it's a spectrum. There was people mm. that never cared for me too much. There were people that despised my play style and they f absolutely hated going against it, but they had respect for me. They respected what I did because it was a trade and it was effective and they didn't like it because it was effective in a way that wasn't fun for them to play against. But, um, I imagine that, you know... Um, if it like, you know, back in the days, if I joined a pug or, you know, pugs were around, they'd, they'd invite me to play, but they still have that kind of disdain. Um, but it's funny. I've also heard some really funny things where I've left impressions on people where it wasn't like a love or hate relationship, but there was this one time, I think it was like 2016 or 2017. I had joined some sort of lobby. Like I think it was like a TF2 center or was it TF2 lobby? I forget which one was the one. Um, <laughs> Some demo man on the enemy team, he went, hey, I remember you. Five and a half years ago, we played in a match against you one time, and you're the guy that did the crazy sentries on, like, process or something. He's like, I will literally never forget that game. He's like, 
getting those sentries down was such a pain in the ass. It's like I've never seen anyone play like you. And I had no idea who the guy was. Like literally, like just another name. I had I've seen thousands of players in my time playing, but I had left this impression on this guy from this single game from like five years ago, and he hadn't forgotten who I was. And like it wasn't exactly like he was a friend or foe. It's just like it was just this this dynamic that it, it made me laugh a little bit. It's just like, yeah, it was just another day for me, but apparently like that like you've you've not forgotten. It's like that is like he described something like I believe him. That sounds like something I would have absolutely have done. But for me, it's just another day. <laughs> the nine to five TF two grind. The nine to five TF two grind. Yep. So is it something like all those memories, sort of experiences, uh, interactions? Is that stuff that you still kind of like carry with you today? Like you look back and it's like, wow, I did those things. I was there for all that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, it's fun to look back at something and to feel like I, you know, I, I play a part in the history of the game. Um, but I think that the thing I take away even more than just you know having someone who's left an, an impression of their you know their little fifteen minutes in the in the realm of the the game is also, I mean, truth be told, I think that what kept me in TF two longer than just the the aspiration to you know. It wasn't really to leave an impression. It wasn't really to you know win the league or be the best. Um, the TF2 of the time that I played, it was actually making the connections that I did. Is I, I really enjoyed the social aspect of it uh, because I you know it was at a time where I mean I know with uh, you know most uh, people today, most teenagers today, is like having online friends is a normalized activity, um, and everyone just has it. But back when I when I did it, it's like that Mac during the millennial uh, generation is you know nobody understood the internet it wasn't as commoditized every single millennial parents like oh everyone on the internet that you talk to they're not real people or they're predators trying to take advantage of you and it's just like oh, that's yep. not what it was i hear that like, that's how yeah, that's how the millennial generation grew up with the internet it was the wild west where everyone was out to get you um but for me um you know like I kept hearing that, and then also, but I looked at my local communities, like I grew up in a small little town, um, I didn't have any family from there, we had moved away from all our family, and I didn't really have a sense of, like, community, um, and I was getting it from this game, and I made a lot of long-lasting relationships, it's like, huh? I have uh, a friend that I was on a team with seven years ago, to this, no, nine years ago, to this day, um, and... We sat down three months ago and had lunch together. He was uh, out here, you know, on the West Coast, mm. and he was a friend that, you know, he'd been in Texas most of the time. Right. And it, we just we reminisce, but like he's someone I talk to all the time. It's like we talk to each other just about like how life is going for us. Um, you know, one of my other TF2 friends, the, the one I mentioned very early on, is like I'm out here on the West Coast in the first place because he um, he offered to let me come out and stay with him sleep on his couch because you know when you're out in the san francisco area when a one bedroom costs four thousand dollars a couch wow. looks a lot more comfortable um <laughs> he helped me get out in the area and another friend helped me explore the industry and today i work out here in, in the industry in the tech industry because of these friends do you want to give um, him a shout out yeah syntax error uh great oh. guy um he, you know, he hasn't played the game for close to a decade. I doubt anyone knows who he is, but <laughs> you know, uh, he's, you know, he's he's part of like he yeah. went from being a gaming buddy to the man who set me up on you know my career and you know gave me what I have today. 
And like, I'm eternally grateful is like, my life is so much different because of that one connection of just playing a game a decade ago. Right. Um, huh? But it, it's crazy. Do you want to, do you think it'd be fair to say that like, with how accessible just like these means of connections have been, that it's just like the individual importance and significance of the interactions, like the genuinity of them has kind of decreased, like sort of like if everybody's a friend, everybody's on your friends list, nobody's really your friend. Absolutely. Yeah. Because hmm. uh, I mean, back in those days, it was like back in the, you know, 2007, 2008 era, it was like these small little uh, cornerstone communities where it took some level of engagement to get there. But now everything right. is astroturfed and there's algorithms that are pushing these types of things and pushing engagement. And yeah, it's so easy. If everything's accessible, you know, it's like the, the old adage of like, you know, having a thousand cable channels, uh, but there's nothing to watch kind of deal is like, uh, it it dilutes the the sense of camaraderie and the sense of connection that we used to have back so then. So, what do we do about that? You know, I don't know. I think that I think that really the only way to um the only way to try and get away from that is to stop trying to engage with the platforms that try to focus on engagement in numbers like you know think of for example is like your conventional social media is like uh facebook and twitter is like they implement these anti-patterns like infinite scrolling oh, yeah. and the algorithms that that promote content creators for just constantly putting out content and it's just like this beacon out but like um it isn't the it isn't like you know you're actually talking to your friends or like you're you're constantly looking for another piece of engagement to your book right. of things that has insane amount of content like reddit but you know, one thing that I've 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 been particularly proud of is the small community that I've I've fostered following the OCRTF2 community that we spoke about a few hours earlier is um I don't do any type of like crazy marketing. I don't do like membership drives. I don't incentivize people to bring in numbers. People can certainly bring in friends here and there, but we you know, we have regular engagement because people come around right. and they they speak with one another, but it isn't like I'm not I've I've escaped some of the algorithmically driven and uh you know be the loudest to be the most recognized we don't we don't promote that type of mentality and in my opinion like i i feel like it's it's fostered a healthier community of yesteryear that you you don't see as much today so you'd say it's more about like the quality of the interaction itself and what it means to you like have it be more personal than the amount of interaction yes the quality of the interaction and i would also say the the opportunity for recurrence of interaction right right which is to say, like, you know, if you can have a quality, a seemingly quality interaction, but it's a different person every week or every month, there's like, that is, you know, like, now you're just like, it's like, it's like how Overwatch does matchmaking. It's like, yeah, you can have a real good game with someone, but you may never see that person again. Um, it doesn't facilitate that opportunity to just like, yeah, sure, you could add them after the game, but you didn't have enough interaction with them. Whereas like TF2 is like, um, the, the community server I played on, like I said, there was two servers back in the day and they'd each fill up on a nightly basis. I saw the same people for months on end. We talked over and over, and, you know, by at the end of six months, I had like uh, 80, 90 people on my friends list that were all just regulars on that community. And we all talk wow. all the time. And that's not something like by how things are driven today, you don't, you don't really get that same opportunity. No. Um, okay. So what's, what's in the near future for you? What are your plans going forward? Uh, as far as like, uh, games or uh, i guess life or i guess like the community you have going but then also just like in general in your own life yeah what's, what's in the near so, future so i would say for the community that i'm running um i've gotten into a healthy cadence you know as as we're all kind of 
adults living our own lives. It's not like the 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 teenage years where that server was full seven nights, um, seven nights a week, and you know everyone's got their own lives. But I, I found an opportunity that it keeps people engaged. We do you know certain activities like once a month, like Jackboxes once a month, TF2 nights once a month. It's a cadence that's regular enough that wants people to come back, but it's not so often that they burn themselves out. So there's a level of appreciation there. So I'm, I'm hoping to keep that running for the indefinite future. Uh, I th we've gotten a little bit of organic growth. Some friends of friends are coming in. Um, so people that have, you know, interacted with me in the past, old competitive players and friends, they've gotten a research to coming in. Um, my primary developer behind the Alt Fortress, he's running uh, the occasional event there as well. And he's had some of his friends come in. So continuing to run that community and hopeful for, you know, continued organic growth and reinforcement of the, the positivity that I've seen there thus far. Um, as far as like you know games go, I say like you know I play Overwatch for fun. I have one friend that I still play it with, and we do OQ occasionally. But I I'm certainly past my heyday. My level of mechanics aren't what they are what they used to be. I don't do actual like uh, leagues anymore. I mean I barely just play, do placements each season and call it a day. Um, so I'm kind of definitely I don't have also I just don't have the time and energy. Like I used to be able to. I mean, there was a point where I was playing TF2, a Highlander League, a Sixes League, a Fours League, and when I was doing uh, Community versus Pros in 2013, believe it or not, that wasn't just a showcase match. That was six months of twice a week uh, training matches in the format so that we could put on a show, go a good showcase. So I had TF2 every night for a couple hours a night. Um, and I just can't do that anymore. Like I used to be able to do sit through a scrim and a match every single night of the week, and I'd go play pub games after. And nowadays, I play like two, three hours a month for my community night, and I might do one or two nights for an hour or so. And I just I can't sit through it like I used to. So competitive gaming is certainly on the wayside. Um, I do talk to people who are still like aspiring competitive players and I kind of give them some guidance and mentorship of like, you know, the philosophical aspects and like also just the positive positivity and, you know, the to try and give them the same takeaways I got, which was the sense of community over just the, 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 the raw desire to win. Um, but anymore, if like, if I want to play games, I'm actually kind of rescinded to playing like single player games and enjoying like all the old retro games of like, you know, the NES era and the Super NES 64 and all of that. Um, you know, for my, my general life is um, continuing to work upward in my career. Um, you know, what's funny is a lot, uh, a lot of people uh, may, you know, may laugh at this, but a lot of the, the team building and uh, problem-solving exercises that I learned throughout my time in TF2, um, I've, actually, I've actually applied a fair number of them in my career as well. And it has actually made me a very strong contender in a lot of the more complex problem-solving situations, both technical and, you know, inter-team. Um, so I've, 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 had, I've had a lot of life experiences there. And what's funny is I've heard other people share similar experiences with me. Uh, a lot of the players who played for a longer time um, you know, when they were applying for jobs, they would put at the, you know, at the, the resume, the foot of the resume, like, yeah, I was a, a team leader for a competitive uh, video game team. And it was a talking point. Everyone, all their, all their uh, interviewers would bring it up and they would have them talk about it. And apparently a lot of them would oftentimes find themselves getting hired because they had the most, they had a very interesting piece that made them stand out. And that, that talking about the team building and things like that, um, set them apart from the other candidates. Hmm. Interesting.
Uh, do you have any like favorite leaders, favorite teams, interesting interactions that you'd want to go over? Yeah, favorite teams. Uh, so there was this one team that was uh, fairly, I would say, controversial. Um, they went by the name Silver Savages. Um, I won't get too much into the details of some of their low lights. Um, you know, they they certainly did their fair number of politically incorrect things. Um, but there was one thing that really much amused me about this team, and they're they're a particularly unusual case. They were for a couple of seasons that they played. They were the actually top team in platinum for the couple seasons that they participated, and the reason was is that they had this very I would say very similar in nature to how I like to approach the game, um, anti-meta non-conventional behavior. Which is to say that they did just strange and unusual things, but they were effective because they were strange and unusual and they executed them well. Um, the main demo man for the team, Invader, um, he exclusively played Demo Knight, or as he called the strategy, Demo Silly. He would use the Claymore and I believe the Tide Turner at the time because it still had crits. And what he would do is he would circumvent the expectation of people, because everyone, you know, roughly knew how, like, you know, if you played enough pubs, even as a competitive player, you knew about how far a Demo Knight could charge. Well, nobody really ran the Claymore, but he ran the Claymore because it gave you that extra half second of charge, which was just enough to throw people off where he could get that extra distance where they would just back up and he would actually go for medic picks quite often. And that team ended up absolutely just dominating the division because he would just constantly go in and go for these crazy medic picks and these other strategies, go for the back line and get the, like the sniper by just like surfing off a ramp and just like sky dropping in on the sniper. And um, I'll never forget the team because I think they ended up winning the division, I think perhaps undefeated for the season, if I can remember correctly. And honestly, part of me misses having that team or having that team around because um, it, it felt very short lived. I think they just, you know, they wanted to move on from the game. But it was kind of that same type of like, you know, psychological chaos of uh, circumventing and subverting the meta that I, I appreciate from engineer, but to see it from somebody doing it from a top team, and especially with Demo Knight, which is like for someone who does like, I've, I, I feel pretty normalized about the silly and, uh, you know, unorthodox strategies I have as engineer. But I imagine people probably see what I do the same way that I saw how he played Demo Knight of all things at a competitive level. And it was just really funny to see. Hmm. That's totally fair, yeah. So it was interesting seeing something like kind of in the same energy on a different class. Exactly, exactly. Um, let's see, other funny stories. Um, oh, yes, I have another funny one. Um, pre-game tryhards. They were, I believe, the number one gold team in Season 13. Uh, so funny story. Um, when I was... So the team that I started with in Season 6, I ended with that team in season 12 we played six entire seasons together and then eventually the team decided that they wanted to go ahead and disband they'd had their fun and that was the first time that i put myself on the i would say like the you know the market to go find a team and i ended up landing a team i was kind of exploring and the team that i found was i would say a modest gold team they certainly weren't like any type of uh very uh top level team and um during the later part of the season, the top team in gold, pregame tryhards, needed a scrim partner. And they ended up going against our team, and, you know, to be blunt, uh, it wasn't really much of a matchup. It was kind of more of a sandbag. 
and um, we played process of all maps. And <laughs> what ended up happening is we played process, and my team was getting steamrolled. Um, I was actually trying to play a little more aggressively with them because I knew that like we were just like we weren't we weren't getting a lot of traction. We needed the extra firepower on mid. And uh, so I played with them, and we just like we all get ourselves, you know, get our faces kicked in, and they would just steamroll us. And like they had like five owed us, and like I don't know, maybe twelve, thirteen minutes for the first half of the scrim. So I was like, you know what, the hell with this. Like, if we're gonna get our stuff kicked in, like at least I could be a safety net for the team, and I can be like a bit of a stonewall strategy, and give our team a bit of an opportunity, or at least practice my strats a little bit. So what I did is I went level threes. And I built at spawn, because usually my strategy, so my, my typical strategy for engineer is I actually like to build a dispenser at spawn on King of the Hill and 5CP. The first thing, like the first thing you walk out the door, not your teleporter, is your dispenser. And then it would accumulate metal. And then I would usually do like a forward building strat with that. But like, I was done. Like we were, we were getting kicked in so fast, it didn't matter. So walking out of spawn, first thing I did is I built a level three. And I put that level three up on the spire on second. Um... And the reason I, I did that is, like, if I did it the first moment I spawned for the round, my team would usually lose the fight just fast enough that I could get the gun up. And when I put this gun up, the funniest thing happened. After getting 5-0'd in 12 minutes on the first half, for the second half, we spent 45 minutes at our second. Because... The gun, how it was positioned, the enemy team did not know how to deal with it, and I was playing very passive. I was hiding behind the um, the sheet metal on second point, and I was rescue rangering the gun. It was before the sentries had fall off, so I was firing rockets and bullets into the choke point, and their team was taking massive damage, and they were always having to prematurely pop the uber charge um, in order to enter the choke. And what ended up happening is it became so ridiculous that like they would literally engage with an uber exchange with my team, and they would usually beat my team in the Uber Exchange and wipe them out. But the problem is they had so few resources left that they would not have enough resources to take on the sentry gun. So what eventually ended up happening is after like 45 minutes, there was an exchange where the enemy team killed all eight of my teammates without an Uber charge. All my team had malpositioned and they had gotten knocked out. Then they... Um, after killing my whole team and they had Uber charge, they Ubered and they had the heavy walk up to the pipe, use the fist of steel to tank the sentry, and then they had their soldier, they flashed their soldier who jumped in with the demo who wasn't flashed, and they two-man bombed me, and they had to uh, get me quickly, and they finally did, but the problem was the sentry killed both of those bombers. So then they had to use like sniper and scout and heavy and what resources they had left. And they all got significantly lit to take out their gun because it was an awkwardly positioned gun. And they finally got the point. But it took like five or six of them to get this thing down. And um, after the match, the team leader messaged me and goes, that was the worst experience I have ever had on this map. Are you looking for a team next season? We will take you as backup if we never, ever have to deal with that again. Oh my God. And that is how I ended up as a sub on pregame tryhards, the Platinum Team Season 14. Which, there's another funny story. They ended up actually having to deal with that century, uh, a, a century like that again. <laughs> so, did you have any interesting experiences as a UGC admin, like per, uh, personally? 
Um, like more than I guess we talked about before. Yeah, I, I would say that honestly, it was a lot of what I expected. There weren't a lot of surprises. Um, I did um a little bit of just doing the rosters um for each weekly matchup. Um, we had a a methodology that had to based on like match points and things like that, so like it was fairly predictable. There wasn't a lot of like uh, subjectivity to it. Uh, just helping teams handle disputes, you know, fairly typical stuff. It's like, oh, this team didn't show up, or hey, we did. We want to use our servers. Like, no, the other team's supposed to use the server for the week. There wasn't a lot that was actually surprisingly um, out of the norm. I would say the only thing is like some of the the holdover members from Plat Council that were particularly troublesome uh, members that caused uh, mayhem in the league. Um, I, I I dealt with them a bit, little bit. I clashed uh, horns with them a bit, um, but candidly, is by the time I was an admin, was kind of post the uh, cheating sniper exodus, so the community was kind of already uh, on the downtrend. So there wasn't as much energy and much opportunity for, I would say, more charged engagements. Hmm. You say candidly a lot. I like that. It's a bit out there. Is that right? Yeah bit refreshing compared to just people saying honestly over and over again. Fair enough. Uh, okay. So would you call that a good or a bad thing, just that expectation being met? Um, I'd say a little bit bad. I wouldn't say like I had a terrible time, um, but I would say that I had hoped for more for the community, but right. I mean, before even being an admin, the writing was on the wall, on the wall based on how like Plat Council had kind of run things into the ground and some of the um, suboptimal decisions that was strangling the league, and then having the having Overwatch be on the horizon, and then the vax bans on all the snipers um, put another dampen on the already kind of I would say downtrend that the league was experiencing. So um, I would say it's uneventful, but uneventful probably wasn't what the league needed at that time. Right, it needed like a change from the status quo. Right, exactly. Okay, so how was NAHL Pugs? That was something you ran, right? Or like uh, I didn't, or- I did not run NAHL Pugs. I was actually Blindsight, who was an UGC admin who ran it, but oh, I did okay. participate in them. Um, and that was an interesting time. So, kind of speaking to the age of um, the community. Is NHL Pugs was a really popular thing in I would say like 2011, 2012, maybe 2013. Um, what it was is before we had things like TF2 Center and TF2 Lobby, which were these kind of fancified interfaces of gen- available to the general populace, it was an IRC channel, like actual straight up IRC protocol and everything. And uh, oftentimes, um, I mean, technically anybody could join, but really you only found I would say like the higher level players joining, like. There was like, um, I forget the exact name. I think it was like NAHL Platinum and NAHL Gold. NAHL Platinum was like, you played with like the top players, like the people that were playing for money and inviting sixes, uh, the top, the, the top teams in Platinum. Um, you played with those players. And if you played with them, you were either among them or you were, you know, probably a low to mid plat player and you played your class. Because that was the only way you could even stand a chance of participating, um, but it was a very competitive time. It was a great—I mean, it was like it was a social mingling time for what it was. Is being being in that community and participating uh, was a great way to get to know the other top players. And like, it's kind of that aspect of like if you think about like how players recruited back in the day, 
is like today's like low level probably divisions you you recruit um by public forums or like finding players in pubs uh discord um, yeah discord forums. Discord is the, probably the common one nowadays yeah like but, like but uh i would say like the high level players and it's probably also true today is like the higher level players there's a there's a much smaller subsection of them and oh, they yeah. often probably just trade amongst each other yep and um back in those days is you traded amongst uh the other teams that you were had close relationships with but if you socially mingled a little bit um every now and again it was kind of like the town square of the top level players was the the irc the nahl pugs and you know i've actually discovered a couple people that i hadn't previously interacted with um i actually ended up becoming a part of a couple of those teams uh pre-game tr- not pre-game tryhards uh deathmark soldiers dms who cylon who was the uh, team lead i think i met him through nahl pugs and um it was away from me after i believe my I think my season with squirtle squad uh, a couple seasons after i actually ended up joining his team but i originally got to know him through pugs but it was a great it was a great fiercely competitive environment and because it was a little less like accessible than say like um you know like tf2 lobby or tf2 center is like the bar was fairly high and the competition was high like those i mean truthfully like some of those games even if they're just being pickup games they were so fiercely competitive they were comparable to like you know gold division final matches hmm, in terms of skill all right so would you definitely say like pug culture was a bit different back then Hug culture certainly was a bit different because I think of one is like the internet was less accessible. TF2 lobby and TF2 center wasn't ex- accessible then. There weren't like discords or things like that. I mean, you had like forums, but like a forum was not a great way to congregate right. and readily do pugs. So like it was these fringe communities like mumble servers of teams may have had pug nights um, and it was usually the team and maybe like another team or a couple other friends. Uh, but NHL pug was kind of like the closest thing you had to like a TF2 center or a TF2 lobby, right. but it was a it, it attracted a lot of the the talent at the very top of all of the divisions. Right. Uh so you played in a community versus pros you mentioned before to me. That's correct. Yes. What was um, that like? Oh, that was a crazy experience. So community versus pros. I believe I played in the. I can't remember. I believe it was the fifth one. So what community versus pros is is it is a showcase match where a committee takes a team of nine players, each one representing a different community, of which I represented I represented the Steam Powered User Forums, um, and we go against the Sixes team, so a Highlander team versus a Sixes team, kind of like a, a a showcase match of the different formats is like which one's better, but you're playing both at once. So the showcase match um was against the number two invite sixes team and we were a community that had played with one another for close to six months in preparations we played two nights a week uh screaming various sixes teams we started with open teams and then a couple months later we started to do uh im teams and then towards the end we actually went against uh, invite teams of which the night before the actual showcase we went against banny's team himself uh which was a lot of fun and it's interesting, and you know um, how the the committee handles it. Because in order to do a good showcase match, they actually would change. Uh, they would they would update the whitelist dynamically based on um, how we performed against the various teams throughout the six months. And I probably should have held back a little more during the practice sessions because I ended up getting, I believe, eleven 
unlocks banned for Engineer. Um, they banned my Wrangler, my Rescue Ranger, the Jag, the Gunslinger. Um, I Thompson was just banned by default, which is not something I really use. The Widowmaker got banned. By the time I think it was done, I think the only thing I had accessible to me was the Southern Hospitality. Um, but it was a lot of fun because um, there were a lot of strats that I learned and employed, which were like, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite ones was we would play Badlands. Whenever we would secure fourth, I would do a Wrangler jump and I would put a sentry on the enemy spire. And I remember when the Sixes players during their stream, they're like, um, listening to the comms it was really funny there was this uh, guy that says like hey like guys they've, they've got a sentry on spire and like you hear this other guy and he goes wait on our spire and he goes <laughs> yes and then you just hear silence and you just hear what a badass that's just like it's the funniest thing respect respect yeah so anyways um funny story um after they banned all my unlocks uh, I still tried to do cheeky strats. Originally, Lakeside was meant to be one of the three maps that was going to be in rotation, and I kept sneaking onto the enemy battlements, and I was putting level 3 sentries on the enemy uh, sniper battlements, and they got so frustrated, they didn't know how to ban it, that they just ended up changing the map to Freight. Oh, no, not Freight. Uh, <laughs> it, they just changed the map. Um, Foundry. They changed it to Foundry. But yeah, no, it was a fun experience. I had six months of preparation, and then when we uh, actually did the uh, the event... Uh, it actually took place on the front page of Twitch TV in 2013, which was really exciting. Uh, why don't you think we really see anything like that anymore? So, for every previous Community vs. Pros event, um, we every single one, Valve gave a nod to on the TF2 blog, and they actually gave out medals and things like that. Um, but that was the event where they stopped doing those things. And ah, I so think that's that why you have that perspective from earlier, kind of. Right. And the, the community that was hosting it, um, the, the, the organizational group, is they still had good engagement. Like It was the front page of Twitch TV, had thousands of viewers, but it wasn't what it was in years past, and they were struggling to keep engagement. Um, and I, I think at that point, is they, they just lost interest, and I don't think anybody wanted to, to take, the, take the reins from them. Right. And uh, I, I guess maybe they felt there was like also a decline in interest themselves, like they hit the peak of the community interest. So... Um, it kind of just, I think, just kind of went by the wayside. I mean, it'd be fun to to see that again. I'd, I'd certainly love to see a, a community. Yeah, maybe shows. RGL could do that. Yeah, it could be a fun resurgence. Yeah, and we have, it's the same league, right? They have the Highlander players and the Sixes players all under the same rules. Why not? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that was the interesting thing, too, is that the coordinators actually, the most prestiged Highlander teams were in UGC. The most prestiged Sixes teams were in ESEA. So they mostly pulled they didn't not everyone was a competitive player but they mostly pulled from competitive players all throughout the highlander um highlander from utc and then they pulled the sixes teams from esea so they actually did a cross uh cross collaboration but i imagine with you know rgl having sixes and highlander in the same uh roof it might be a little harder because um you might have players that participate in both but i think there's another aspect that made uh community versus pros distinct is communities versus pros they took a com the, each player on the highlander team was a completely separate unique community i represented steam power user forums we had someone that may have represented there was a community i believe literally called fuck yeah tf2 that was like a tumblr community <laughs> uh team fortress tv i think they may have had one uh polycount had a representative you could find like there were more than nine distinctly very yeah. you know high. Uh -oh. High-fidelity communities. I could read them um, over real quick if you want. Uh, yeah, sure, that'd be great. Yeah, so you had VP77, Sephiroth, uh, 
Edge Gamers Organization on Scout, uh, Fusion IBBY, um, Source OP Soldier, uh, Liz PKC, Fuck Yeah TF2 on Pyro, uh, Scott Ors from BO Iceberg, Labcoat Gamers Demoman, Executor uh, Dr. Nightnick, Decent Teammates Heavy, uh, Game Master Janobi, Steam Users Forum Engineer, On Your Mark Panda, TRH Servers Medic, TN Oxygen Hack uh, Brackets SE, uh, I don't know if that's square what the specific term is, but it's brackets. Uh, Dystopia.hac, The Twisted Network on Sniper, and Optimus Prime, Yo Daddy Fool, Neo Gamers View on Spy. Yeah, so like most of those communities, I don't think it, like half of them, probably if not almost all of them, don't exist today. Probably, um, yeah. But that was in an era where like there was like dozens and dozens of TF2 communities. And I think today we're probably consolidated. It'd probably be difficult to find nine uniquely represented TF2 communities. Um, like it was back in the day because like back then too is like when these communities were nominated it wasn't just like a community of like five or six people it's like i think they had a minimum requirement of like a couple hundred members and then they had to amongst themselves nominate someone they wanted to participate um it was i mean it was a high bar to participate and i, I feel like we've as any community matures or any game or the communities around a game mature is they consolidate and i feel like we've certainly entered a consolidation era where it would be a lot harder to find that type of um diverse representation is like each of those each of those teams is like some of those classes even had significant representation um oxy in particular fun fact um i met oxy through community versus pros and he was being the sniper that he was he was such a good sniper he actually i brought him to my competitive teams and we played competitive a number of seasons after but uh the 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 lead or the community he represented was a well-known sniping community and i think that uh, a small subset of those like sniper players still every blue moon they asked me to set up their server for them and they set up an SVS server but you know it's kind of a, a resurgence of like for some of those communities they were very meaningful for uh, the people they represented and it was a big deal like a community of nothing but snipers decided to put their best sniper forward to represent them in this in this showcase and hmm. it was a, it was a different era for sure right well, let's see. let me just go and see if I can find like any of the communities if they're still active. Let's see. Uh, so from what it looks like so far, Edge Gamers organization is alive. Uh, they still do TF2 stuff. Uh, source up the community. Uh, let's see. I don't think it's that active anymore. I think the thing with a lot of these older communities is that they just have like dead Steam groups where it's just like nothing happens exactly. anymore. A lot, yeah. I mean, a lot of these places they had like their own websites and everything. They weren't just Steam groups; like they had right. like full communities and everything. Uh, let's. See. Yeah, I don't, I don't think fuck yeah TF2 is alive. Uh, I suspect that it's not. The forums. Uh, I guess that's like a different thing now. Right. Uh, the rabbit hole servers. Let's. See. Uh, the rabbit hole isn't around anymore. The twisted network. Let's see. Mm, their their server, like their website, is down. So I'm gonna guess they're dead. Let me check though. Also, for what it's worth, I found a um promotional poster i actually have this very poster hanging on my wall yeah the memorial of this um, that's what i'm looking at online right now yeah pretty mm -hmm. sure let me just double yeah. check so 
Oh, I think I accidentally sent you two links. Uh, ah, right. yeah, that's what that's what I've been looking. I have the like on display. Yeah, yeah, I actually have this one uh, printed out and uh, hung on my wall. It's a it's a positive memorial remembering back in the day some of the cool things that it, and people I got oh. to meet. So, so it looks like maybe at least one. I maybe one or two. One or two. I mean, yeah. I mean, 2013 was nine years ago. So, I mean, it's yeah. been nearly a decade no, for it, a lot of this. It's just surprising to see, like, entire communities just sort of vanish like that. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like, even with the own community, the Overclocked Revenix TF2 community, back when I did, it was it used to be two servers that filled on a nightly basis every day for years. And, you know, now we're, uh, we're a fraction of what we once were. We still have a, a community under a new name, but, you know, communities reorganize and um but yeah. no it's it, it's still uh it's a good memorial at the times of like during the the heyday of tf2 to see like those communities were probably pillars of what represented the broader tf2 community and it's just great to you know have those memories and remember the the, the good times right. and sort of get those covered yeah like sort of archive those in a way yeah make mm -hmm. sure the memory doesn't die out because the memory is what keeps this community going i feel like yeah exactly uh so sorry yeah, no, I'm just uh, certainly just agreeing with you. Oh yeah, <laughs> we are we are gamers agreeing. No way. <laughs> so uh, it looks like you did play for a little bit on RGL. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, so by the time I actually began uh, in RGL, I was already kind of um, starting my career out in you know the West Coast. I was I had moved across the country, so I was uprooted from a lot of what I was accustomed to. So I wasn't able to be a main on any of those teams. I was only a sub. Um, I believe I played... There was two different teams. Um, there was, I believe, Heartthrobs, which that was a couple of years after I had stopped playing. There was, a, I believe, a UGC admin, Doppel, who had also retired from the game. And he wanted, for the hell of it, to reinitialize uh, a new team. And he just wanted to get all his old gaming buddies back together. So I think that he reached out to me. It sounded like fun because I didn't recognize most of the people he was bringing onto the team. But none of us had played the game from anywhere from like two to five years. So like um, all of us were rusty. None of us understood the lingo, the meta. We didn't understand RGL. And um, we, we joked that we called it, um, it was the team of uh, robbing the retirement home is everyone there was just all retirees being kicked back into it, and we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we had fun for a few games, unfortunately. I think for most of us, um, life had gotten away. Most of us were either in college or after college in our career. So that one didn't last for the longest. Um, and then the other team, I believe, was I Hate Mondays. Um, yeah. I had someone who was a friend of the team, and they needed a sub, so they asked me to sub for them. And I think they never once asked me to actually participate. So I'm pretty sure I ended up um, getting a first place medal. In fact, I think it got bugged because I hadn't launched my game in so long. I didn't actually launch it at all that season. Not only did I not participate in a single match, I was the only one on the team to get two first place medals for that particular season. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, my RGL experience is far more limited than my UGC one because at the time that I still was a regular player, UGC was more of the status quo. Um, and RGL was a little bit more past my heyday. That's definitely fair. Well, let's see. Uh, 
So another thing you mentioned to me before in the past was uh, Gunslinger Engineers playing against a Highlander team? Oh yes, this was another fun one. So this was back again in the kind of the heyday of TF2 where things were going all over. So um, the Steam-powered user forums at the time when it was still not the 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 Steam integrated discussion boards, it was an actual B bulletin board on like uh, Steam or you know Valve's website itself. Um, there used to be a lot of member activity, like I'd say several uh, a couple thousand users at any given time. And someone put together, I think it was a caster, I think a uh, caster for some, maybe Team Fortress TV, they put on a showcase event. And the showcase event was to put, because it was at the time when engineer, Gunslinger Engineers, like everyone still hated them, they were new, and they had the weird bug where like, when the mini century would build, it would like still restore health even if you damaged it, so like it would generate 150 health. But it had a cap of 100, but if you did 50 damage to it, it would still generate 50 more health and still spawn at 100 health. So minis were really annoying, and everyone hated Gunslinger Engineers. So, taking the meme too far, the caster put on a community event where they put nine Gunslinger Engineers against a Highlander team, with the exception that on the Highlander team, they swapped out the engineer on that team with a Demo Knight. So it was Highlander team minus an NG plus a demo knight and nine gunslinger engineers and you weren't allowed to use a wrench everyone had to be gunslinger and um it was just a really silly game i don't remember what all the maps were but i do remember that on double cross uh i gave the caster a run for her money because <clears throat> in addition to a lot of my unorthodox engineering strategies i actually learned and popularized a lot of my strategies before the wrangler was even a thing i used to be able to believe it or not i have a I have a, a gimmick uh, for maps like Fastlane. The, the scaffolding, the rooftop on Fastlane, I can get a full nest on top of Fastlane without using the Wrangler. In fact, before you could even move buildings, I was able to get a full nest up there without even having movable buildings or a Wrangler. Um, and there's lots <laughs> of strategies like that. You can do it on maps like Nucleus and get in the rafters um, without needing Wrangler. Um, but anyways, on Double Cross in particular, there's a very cheeky jump you can do where if you're on either battlements particularly the enemy's battlements in this, this situation if you put a dispenser down you can do a very very specific crouch angle jump and if you get the momentum just right you can get on the roof of the uh, battlements on double cross and i kept it a secret i let us go back and forth and focus on getting their intel for about a cap or two we were struggling a little bit but uh we we, we got one they got one but all the focus was on the on the intel everyone's like oh it's just a typical game just gonna all rush that i uh very in a very sneaky fashion snuck to the battlements on the enemy side and put down a teleporter and then i communicated to my team i said hey guys group up i'm gonna build a cell level three we're all gonna take this and you guys are gonna set up nest and they're like, well, where's it at? And I'm just like, just trust me. I'm just like, let's go with it. Um, so they all took the telly. Next thing you knew, five dispensers, five uh, teleporter exits, and there was like four to six minis just all across the top of the double cross battlements on the on the enemy side. And the game just went to a standstill because nobody could actually get out and peek because the minis would all target and just like destroy people. And anytime, like, there's like one or two blind spots. Anytime anyone tried to do that, we just had an engineer that would just 
patrol the low areas and just start shotgunning people trying to corner it and like the whole thing just devolved into a whole circus act where it's just like gunslinger engineers just overrunning the rooftop and like they could go get the intel but the enemy team couldn't get out because it was just an absolute gridlock and it was it was really funny world war one what's that this relating it to world war one yeah yeah it's trench warfare except it's rooftop warfare instead it's the roof warfare game. okay and then um yeah, you've done a MVM map in the past, right? I did. So what was that like? That was actually a lot of fun. I'm I'm really sad to say it never ended up getting um finished. So what the map was is before I created the alternative fortress mod where I changed all the attributes in the game, um I actually explored the attributes in the game and I learned something. As I was exploring the MVM source files, I found out you can create basically custom MVM robots that uh, have attributes applied to the weapons. You can make them arbitrary attributes. And I had an inspiration at the time. So I did, I did two things. I did one, uh, I have a really funny video um, where I created an MVM wave on, I believe, Manhattan. And uh, do you got a link wave... to the video? Yeah, let me see if I can find you that video. Um, and what it was is it was... Uh, it was, what was it? It was a, a wave of a single giant soldier that had like 10,000 health. And it had a valve rocket launcher. So, as you can expect, it was Robin Walker's, you know, valve rocket launcher, one for one copied onto the soldier. Had like, you know, 99,000 rockets. It fired like almost instantly. They did like so much damage that there's no amount of mitigation that keep you alive. Um, but I made it because the short circuit had just been modified. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time the short circuit, when it was modified, um, it was so broken that if you just held down left click, all you had to do was hold down left click and it would despawn all projectiles unconditionally. And hmm. to make a point of how broken the short circuit was, I created this Valve rocket launcher soldier. And I... I set up a strategic route of following the soldier where I knew the metal boxes were and where there weren't metal boxes. I would have things like a dispenser set up in a, a, a strategic location that I could hold down mouse one basically the whole time through the entire time. And I would be able to despawn, despawn every single valve uh, rocket launcher rocket and do damage to the soldier such that I could actually kill a single valve rocket launcher giant soldier by just using the short circuit the entire time. Um, I will certainly send you that video. It is uh, fantastic. Let's see if I can pull it up. Um, versus... Ah, I found it. So right. it's going to be uh, this one right here. So let's see. Find a... There you go. So yeah, you can just skip forward and you can just watch. It's just around, I think, give it to around 50 seconds or so. And that's about when the, the engagement starts. Alright, let's see this skirmish unfold. What sort of scuffle this repscallient can scuttle. <laughs> <laughs> so, while this is going on, I guess I can also talk a little bit to um, what what came next. Well. So, after learning that I could modify the attributes <clears throat> to the game, um, I found that I could create more engaging missions. So, I had a really interesting idea. Um, I wanted to make the history of TF2 into MVM missions. So my, oh. my idea 
was I would take every year or span of years based on updates and like for example like you know how like NBM missions like you have like a normal wave or an advanced wave and, like their mission the name like that so like I had one that was like 2007 and all the bots just have stock attributes and then in like 2008 to 2011 would be the next mission set it'd be just a single mission of those three years combined together and it would have like a wave of backburner pyros using the original backburner attributes what were the original um, attributes what's that Oh, the original attributes? Uh, the original yeah, backburner could not air blast, and it had 50 extra health on wear. Wait, 50 um, extra health on wear? It did. The very, very first iteration, if I remember correctly, <laughs> gave the pyro an extra 50 health. Um, but what I did is I created waves and missions based on years. And um, originally, I just had it run on Rottenberg. And, um, but then I realized, it's like, you could do more with this. So I... Uh, I coordinated with a map maker, and we created the concept of MVM uh, Museum 5, which uh, Museum 5 is the idea that the, the logo of the V, it was a Roman numeral 5, would go below the word museum. So it would be M-V-M. So it was kind of a little bit of a meta reference. But uh, <laughs> so Museum 5 was the name of the map. And it was like a Gothic style museum where the idea is there would be display cases. And like display cases, like, and, like in props, like you would see in like an actual museum. And what was going to be really nice about it is I was trying to make it easy for the map maker is the whole idea is that all the assets of what all the displays in the museum would be would be literally just in-game weapons and models. So like we wouldn't have to do a lot of custom asset creation because if the, you know, the whole map was just going to be the history of TF2, it was just like put a Liberty Launcher over there, put it in a display case, put a scattergun in a display case. You know, you can have the soldier's hat and backpack is like you would just see the, the game laid out in its history in front of you. Um, we ended up getting a beta map done. It didn't get any textures, so it was all the, you know, just the the checkerboard type, well, not the pink checkerboard, like a white uh, hammer unit checkerboard deal. Uh, the map never was finished, but we ended up getting most of the missions done. Um, the last mission, because I think at the time we were doing the initiative, let's say 2014, 2015, the game was on a bit of an update drought. But the last mission, we had like 2007 up to 2013, and 2013 was when there was so many updates. It was just an insane amount. Um, so I just decided I wanted to make it like the hardest mission. It was a big splash. Wave 2013 was a Wave 666 style mission where it was just throwing all sorts of stuff at you nonstop, just one colossal wave. And um, at the end of the, the, very, the very end of everything, um, the final boss was a custom uh, heavy that did not have real in-game attributes. What he had is he had a minigun that shot rockets and the rockets had rocket specialist level 3 on them that would uh, freeze the player in place, but they would fire so fast that once you started getting hit by the rockets at the rate that they were hitting you, you would be literally be glued there until you inevitably died. So it was like this really crazy boss-style strategy. And what was funny about that is the rocket specialist would penetrate Dead Ringer and the heavy would not stop firing. So even Dead Ringer and Invis was not enough to stop you from getting killed by this thing once it was on you. So it was like a crazy challenge to end it off. Um, while the map never did get finished, I did reach out to the map maker a number of years later. And um, I took my source files, the custom missions. We also created some custom icons. So that each like robot, like there's like a holiday punch heavy dev, like a little holiday punch mittens icon. So like all of that was custom. Uh, we put the whole thing on GitHub. So if someone ever wanted to go out and actually like give uh, some aesthetics to the um, to the the map and you know finally get that MVM mission 
across the finish line like i would be so excited to see it. it'd be really cool to see um i will certainly send you a link for that uh once i'm able sure. to dig it up um okay and are there any other sorts of interesting tf2 development projects you've taken let's see um I did Alternative Fortress. That was a big one. Um, Museum 5 was another one. It's kind of an MVM focus. Um, I helped a couple of modelers and animators do some basic um, do some basic uh, 3D modeling and help with rigging, uh, helping them make uh, you know items for TF2. Uh, but nothing substantial there. Nothing ever really got in. But it was just a lot of fun. I helped the community out. Um, let's see. What else? I wouldn't say there's anything else I can think of that's particularly noteworthy, but I mean, I did a lot of, um, you know, just I participated in a, a, just as much, if not more, as um, I participated in like every type of league and division. I did four sixes Highlander. Um, I ran a number of community servers for years, uh, Alternative Fortress, Museum 5. Um, I also even discovered a number of exploits in the game uh, that I, I had communications with um, if Robin Walker himself. Um, where, believe it or not, when the TF2 economy came out, um, it was kind of spaghetti code. Uh, funny story. Um, they didn't really kind of patchwork their own item system. And what they did is, um, up until before Manconomy, the only thing that dropped were weapons and hats. There wasn't an idea of crates or consumables or paints or anything like that. And um, when they introduced the economy, they had a really crazy bug in there. And I was the first one to figure this out. So what it was is every item that dropped in the game referenced uh, an index number. So, which is to say, like, um, the Islander is indexed 60, let's say. And what an Islander was, was defined in your item schematics, which was a locally stored file that the game downloaded in plain text. I was just playing around with it. I was like, you know, 16 years old, and I was just playing around. I was learning to, you know, coding and config files. And for the hell of it, I was like, you know what? I wonder what would happen if I took the index config file for the Manco key and overwrote a weapon like the Islander. So I went in and I did it, and then I launched my game. The Islander looked like a key. So I was like, well, I wonder if it'll open. So I took the Islander and I targeted uh, a crate. Countdown went. Five seconds later, I think I unboxed like a paint or something. Blew my mind. Um, I ended up, you know, in good faith. I immediately reported it to Valve. I was like, hey, here's the stuff to reproduce. Here's what I did. I've only done it the one time. You know, kind of white hat hacking or gray hat hacking, I guess I should say, because, uh, you know, they didn't, they put, didn't put me up to it. And, you know, they were... They didn't ban me or anything, so that's the good news. But uh, always a little disappointed because despite finding that exploit, um, they never gave me anything for it. But I was always a little bitter uh, about the fact that every person that found an exploit after that, like the guy that figured out that you could name, like you could mark a, a golden wrench as a stock item, and if you name tagged a stock golden wrench, it would give you a golden wrench. Every ever person that found an exploit after me actually ended up getting like you know the burning Max's heads and those crazy one of a time um, unusuals. Um, but that the I was actually the first person in the economy space to find that exploit. Um, but they didn't start doing that uh, informal 
procedure until after I actually discovered it. So to this day, despite having you know done such a, such a thing, I don't really have a lot to show for it. Which is, you know, it's cool that I did it, but it would have been nice if you know they had had a sense of you know retroactivity to you know acknowledge me the way that they acknowledge the other uh, you know reporters of exploits. Right. Well, I'd say at least your actions in the community have just like left a pretty big legacy, even if that's not really realized today, and hopefully this video could kind of help spread that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that with today is, you know, regardless of, you know, whether people remember or not, I think what's what's really important to me is, you know, like I said, is like uh, the community that I've, the communities that I have built and I've participated in have had a, a very negative, or not sorry, negative, a very positive um, impact on my life and, you know, have helped shape, you know, like my career and where I am today. So, I don't think that the recognition is important as much as it is, um, you know, just the the actual positive takeaway. So in in any regard, I'm I'm glad having the opportunity to share um, all these the crazy experiences that have happened over the past decade. Um, but you know, independent of that, I think that it it's important for me to not take for granted the the other um, positive takeaways that I've had the, the the pleasure of taking away after all these years. Hmm. Okay. Uh, are there any other sorts of things you'd want to touch on, or do you think that's about it? Like, do you think that does your story justice? I think so. Okay. I can't, uh, there, there might be like odds and ends here and there, but I think that that is a pretty good overview. That's fair. Okay then. All right. Well, that was, uh, let's see, four hours? Yeah. Four hours. Damn. Three hours, actually, I lied. Oh, okay. <laughs> Time Did we zone. start at six? Time zone diff. I thought we started at five Pacific. Uh, we did. Well, I it's think we nine. spent a bit talking beforehand, though, yeah. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Gotcha. Wow. The hell of a... Are you still recording, by the way, or...? Uh, I'll go and end it now, yeah.